Welcome to episode 29 of Storm the Norm, the fortnightly podcast where we pick up norms that come in the way of businesses succeeding in a disruptive world. I am Narayan. And I'm Anisha Motwani. Storm the Norm is brought to you in association with Grant Thornton Bharat. On to today's episode now. Anisha, I was having a conversation at home a few days back when a family member, uh, she's an academician who's far removed from the world of business, mm-hmm. uh, a professor of sociology with degrees in English literature and sociology, so as removed as you can think of. Mm-hmm. She asked this very disarming question. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to hear what googly she tossed at you. It, it was a googly in the sense that it was so simple yet disarming. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. said, you know, I have no clue about these venture capital firms. W- what exactly do they do? Mm-hmm. And as I heard myself answering it, I realized that perhaps I had unconsciously uncovered a norm that we don't actively think about even just as a norm. What did you tell her? I'm, I'm, I'm curious now. Uh, my reply was that venture capital firms basically mop up money from various sources, individuals and institutions, pension funds across the world, etc. And then they pull it up to then fund startups and new ventures. Basically, they move others' money around and make more money by doing so. <laughs> when you put it like that, it sounds so simplistic. And I'm not sure VCs would like your reductionist definition though. <laughs> I doubt it either. Uh, But as reductionist as it might sound, I do think there's more than a kernel of truth to it. Because they're not making anything in the traditional sense of manufacturing or creating. If anything, they are manufacturers of belief, getting those with investable wealth to to believe enough in ventures that don't currently exist and then back them with that surplus money that they have. Well, when you put it like that, describing them with that catchy phrase of manufacturers of belief, it's not very flattering to VC, is it? But I see where you're going with that. Let me articulate the norm for today before going further. You know, it is this. The startup economy today is only about moving money, not about value creation. And I deliberately use the word or the phrase startup economy to -hmm. include multiple players in the ecosystems, not just VCs. So think about it. VCs mop up money from various sources and move it to startups. Funders move that money to various stakeholders, including a disproportionately large portion to the marketing funnel, all in the hope of building an unrealistic but attractive perception of success, leading to a successful IPO, and moving more money into the hands of just a few, the original VCs and investors, founders, and a small clutch of others. So as you can see, the focus is all in creating a multiplier effect by moving money around at speed and scale. And my question is, where is value creation for the world at large or even progressive benefit for a large set of customers in all of this? You are not a cynical person by nature, Narayan, but this seems like you're skeptical about the entire startup ecosystem. That's not my intention, Anisha, but but yes, I do want to interrogate this to understand it better. I mean, if this is truly a norm, don't you think it's ripe for storming? Happily for me, I can pass the responsibility of answering that question right now to an expert in the field. Our guest expert today is very well placed to storm this norm. VT Bharadwaj is a general partner with A91 Ventures, an Indian investment firm that seeks to partner with founders to build enduring businesses for tomorrow's India. VT, welcome to Storm the Norm. 
Right, thank you so much once again, uh, Viti, for uh, joining us over here this morning. So right off the top, uh, you know, when we spoke about this norm with you in terms of, uh, you know, the value creation versus merely money movement, I'd like to kick it off with that to begin with, right? So with the, with the money movement part of it. Uh, and it feels like, you know, uh, without taking any particular uh, instance in mind, it feels like venture capital funds mop up money from various individual and institutional investors and funds from around the world. Uh, that money then moves to startup ecosystem. The startups then move that money to various stakeholders, spending disproportionately in building their market perception uh, with the line of sight of an IPO in mind. And what ends up happening is value creation in terms of wealth creation for a few but not necessarily value creation in the sense that the startup was created in the first place with disruptive progress in mind. Uh, so it just feels like it's it's a game of off a few, for a few, which primarily involves money movement more than anything else. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, it would be quite disappointing if that's what it turned out to be. Uh, because, uh, and, and of course, look, we are coming off uh, a cycle, a very, very, very violent cycle of uh, both liquidity um, as well as uh, capital coming into India uh, in a very, very short span of time. Uh, but then if you really take a bit of a slightly more longer picture and if you take, let's say, even a five-year view or a 10-year view in terms of capital that has come into a country like India for, uh, you know, investing in startups, young companies so they can grow, the, the ship has been a bit more steadier. You know, versus what the last 12, 18 months will have you believe. You know, India is to get maybe seven, eight billion of capital every year. That has been from 2015 to 19, and maybe even 20. And uh, 21 was really an exception where 35 billion of capital came in. And therefore, you suddenly see, you know, a wall of money coming in, and that, and the wall of money occupies the newsrooms, the headlines, and all our minds. And therefore, you do uh, wonder what this is all about. But it would be quite disappointing because I think the. The interesting thing about venture capital is really the ability to supply capital to young companies and be very patient about it for a very long period of time. It is risk capital. So this is not debt, it is equity. So unlike a bank, you're talking about putting in money where there is a real chance that you will not raise, realize any capital out of it with the hope that over a seven, eight, 10 year period, you build something worthwhile. Uh, and then that company eventually goes to liquidity in the public markets. Uh, or get sold to a high quality private company because that is the goal of the founder and that is the goal of the, of the, of the investor there. So in an ideal world, the way to think about venture capital is really patient, high risk, long-term capital. And, and ideally with patient, high risk, long-term capital, you should be able to build. So I definitely think that and believe that the, the purpose of venture capital uh, uh, is certainly long-term value creation. And, and, and then hopefully some of these, uh, you know, episodic blips will remain exactly that which is episodic blips versus, you know, really changing the narrative around what the purpose of the capital is. We hear you say this whole revolving door syndrome of money, you know, money revolving from one to the other. Uh, if, if that is not true, how do you explain that four large IPOs, Paytm, Zomato, 
policy bazaar nika they mopped up 38% of all the liquidity from the market almost 38000 crores which are apparently 38% uh, i was reading some stats um, so isn't it true that by this time you know the funds and all the critical early stakeholders have actually got their returns they've taken their risk up front they've got their money and you know they've actually dumped the losses onto the public market so you know i don't want to comment on a specific ipo uh, 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 because you know i've not been involved in any of them uh, but i think the 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 smart founders and the smart uh, companies have uh, look there was an ipo boom and an ipo boom that are absolutely going to be you know since of uh, kind of commission and since of omission be it on the companies be it on the the, the various stakeholders during the entire process right and this is not characteristic of Uh, just India outside. Or frankly, this is not just characteristic of even you know one kind of a company which is going out and raising money. So mm-hmm. during an IPO, you know everyone is obviously believing in the best potential at the best possible time for the you mm-hmm. know for the, for the longest. So I think uh, it becomes very hard to separate uh, 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 the good IPOs from the bad till you wait for some time. You know it mm-hmm. takes five, seven, ten years before you go out and say you know there was a page industries that did IPO in two thousand and seven. That may be a valuation of six hundred crores, where again a bunch of investors sold, and bunch of and the company raised some money, and that company is worth, you know, thirty forty thousand crores today in fifteen mm-hmm. years, right? So I think it takes time, you know. So six months and one year is too short a time to react to saying, hey, what has happened to these uh, happened to these companies? I think the more important thing is during the IPO, the companies, uh, the smart companies, made sure they were well resourced. So mm-hmm. whoever would have automatically said, hey, you know, I need. Primary capital for this business, and therefore I raise capital. Hmm. Uh, there may be companies which didn't need any capital. Mm-hmm. Is they said, "Hey, look, it's an offer for sale, and that's great because theoretically you're saying the company doesn't need any capital. Hmm. That, then it should really not need any capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the company grows, you know, after that over a period of time. Hmm. So I do hope that out of this list of people who raised money, there are at least a few which over a five, seven, ten year period, you know, really build value because that's a time frame to judge whether finally at the end of it. Uh, you know, of course, there may be even a few investors who sold, but uh, but the ideal case is where the investors at the end of five years say, "Shit, you know what? I wish I had waited five more years." Because if you go back and look at the venture capital history, mm-hmm. uh, you know the 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 time when a Google IPO happened, mm-hmm. the time when a Facebook IPO happened, and many of them were thought to be very very aggressively priced IPOs, and therefore mm-hmm. investors and venture capital investors at the point would have sold. But the reality is, if they had held, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, the the data would show you that they would have made even more money, much more multiple of money had they held on than what they sold at IPO. Which is why the thesis in venture capital was always that you know the best companies you know you you do realize are uh, you know you do want to be shareholders for the longest possible time versus you know a short or shortest possible time and then you sell and you move on. So you still so, feel that there's hope for investors in these IPOs if they. No, I, I cannot comment on an individual, <laughs> but I do hope it will be. It would be very tragic for the ecosystem if, you know, out of this set, you do not have at least a couple which kind of lasted and created more value over the next five years, uh, you know, mm-hmm. than uh, than what it looked like at the time of IPO. Just a quick follow up on the VT. I mean, I, I can see, and I, I don't can't find any fault with the perspective that the venture capital funds come up with. But do you think enough startup founders see this perspective as sharply as you articulated it, or? Are they all starry-eyed with an IPO in mind when they set up? Yeah. So, look. One of the things to remember is in, a, in the startup, we are still a very relatively immature, young ecosystem. Okay. Uh, the the whole 
venture private investing in india as i keep reminding people is less than 15 16 years old at best 18 years old in terms of meaningful scale and size uh, and the venture part of the ecosystem is barely 10 12 years old right so i do think that people get starry eyed across the board you know mm-hmm. and investors companies uh, you know and other people in the stakeholders i think the question is when setbacks come and as for sure they have already in some ways and they will do you have the ability to digest that and also see that as a part of life because otherwise you know if everything only goes up uh, you know you you founders and investors all think that you know things are going so swimmingly well that uh, they're both incredibly smart and uh, that uh, you know they are so good i think it takes a bit of a few setbacks to kind of separate the grain uh, separate the shaft right and realize that hey look this is going to be a rocky ride because it is absolutely a roller coaster ride uh, i have never seen a startup ride which is a smooth line ever uh, in my 15 years of investing so what's your approach to separating the wheat from the chaff i have uh, you know we have at a91 and i and i represent a91 here is you know we want to back founders who are trying to build an enduring business and 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 in to build an enduring business you need to have line of sight on profitability uh, you need to have line of sight on uh, uh, you know how much capital are you going to require to get reasonable scale and be profitable and generate cash and it's very important that founders and investors have this lens uh, you know when they think about uh, you know how they are planning their growth journey uh, you can of course you know in a, in a fast growth see you as at some level investors and founders are you trading capital against time so the purpose of putting in capital is to accelerate that right? and by definition it could be accelerating brand building it could be accelerating a capex it could be accelerating the build out of a distribution Uh, and therefore by definition you will incur let's say losses in the first few years but you need to have line of sight on two things you need to have line of sight on at what scale are you going to be profitable number one and number two at all points of time you need to have line of sight on your gross margins uh, because if you don't have gross margins you cannot build a business mm-hmm. so i think that is what we try very hard uh, you know nisha is if you know if you are honest about how you are managing and improving your gross margins and if you are honest about the line of sight that you have saying hey at this scale mm-hmm. I be a profitable business uh, then i think you have a greater shot at building an enduring business and creating enduring value now what will be the size of that enduring value we don't know and mm-hmm. that's why the third thing i'd like to comment is you know india is a deceptively large and a small market okay right? uh, and depending upon which product category in your building you have to be mm-hmm. very careful about the market size that you estimate for the category and you have to make mm-hmm. sure that within a reasonable share of that market you end up with an enduring business hmm So actually, uh, I I built up on my follow up rather on this, Riti is justifiably the points that you just put on on growth uh, roadmaps on profitability and scale are the primary focus as as a business that's in the business of of growth, if you will, right? Uh, but but I go back to the foundational promise of any startup, which is positive disruption, right? And in other words, progress, if you will. uh but really uh, on an ongoing basis even in the 5 to 7 year uh, line of sight and horizon would you say there is as much eye on the ball in terms of that progress uh, with that foundational promise as in terms of any metric other than just speed and size of uh, growth so i think on the disruption side right uh, you know i'm always uh, very careful in using the word see it, the no startup can succeed 
if it does not have something new to offer right uh, uh, and it is not possible otherwise so it has to be something that it has new to offer it has to be something which makes sense for the customer so making sense for the customer is product market fit and new is because differentiation right so you need a differentiated product and you need product market fit and after that you need an approach or a go to market that also is differentiated so that you can hope to scale and get to scale i think if you don't do these things it will be very hard to go through the journey of scale when you see tremendous product market just to give you a sense that company has scaled from 35 crores to 240 crores in two and a half years awesome. making money every year absolutely navin last question from you um yeah maybe i'll circle back to uh, where we started also uh, i mean it, it comes back to I, i guess there can't be a science to this but what would be an appropriate strike rate that you think uh you know when when you go to bat for startups and you you make your bets uh what would be a what would be an acceptable strike rate to say you know 3% of my investments will pay off or whatever number that is and what is it that um you know you would change in the way um you know somebody like you a vc and your investees uh the 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 dynamics between them need to change in order to you know um, make the odds more favorable for success yeah. so look the odds and and, and uh, india is a relatively young market so i will rely on international markets for what it looks like on the venture world which is very early stage you know uh, you know venture investment which is think of it as a first check of 3 to 5 million uh to behind an idea and a team i think the number used to be 50% or 40% 45% losses and the remaining 55% Mm-hmm. Right, more than compensating for the losses and generating stellar returns, right? And imagine if those funds have to generate a eight, ten times return. How much mm-hmm. the remaining fifty-five should have contributed? Mm-hmm. In the slightly more later stage, which is where we kind of operate, ten to fifty million, you can't have. Uh, you it has to be a a much more balanced approach. Your strike rate is now not in terms of losing capital. Mm-hmm. It's really in terms of saying, can you have you know. 20 30 40% of the fund performing at 7 8 times can you have uh, uh, at least maybe then you have maybe 10 20% which underperform in which case you maybe make a return between 1 to 2x and then the belly of the portfolio you drive towards a 5 times return so on an overall basis you know you end up at 5 times so the stage at which we come in which is the 10 to 50 we don't we can't lose money it's really saying the underperformers are those where you're generating 1 to 2 times uh, and then the outperformers are those where you generate 8 to 10 times Uh, so that's the way the portfolio changes the key narayan is that the the risk obviously the, the riskiest part of the spectrum is when you underwrite a very early check where you accept you know higher level of losses i think once you start gravitating towards the larger checks you cannot have losses because then it's a big to do the hole uh, to fill for the fund to return yeah you have and your own bell bell curve benchmark exactly <laughs> <laughs> and is there anything in the investi uh, we see dynamic that you would change uh for them also to see that their chances of success increase when they do that versus how the status quo currently is narayan yeah. putting it very narayan is putting it very gently and in crude words i would say you know are you just annadatas or are you also you know guys who are actually strategically guiding your organizations to pivot and to change course and to do something strategically different you know and away from the starry eyed dreams of the st- of the st- uh, of the founders yeah uh is a very tough question now <laughs> you said it very yourself <laughs> see it, it often i think the first is for founders to realize that a lot of them is actually their hands in terms of how they define the relationship and what they get out of it okay 
uh, you know, is it like Anadatta, as 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 Anisha said, or is it something which is a lot more proactive and is a real relationship? Is very much in the hand of the founders, and and I do think that uh, at the early stages, before let's say an early stage, I define as a journey from uh, you know fifty crores or zero crores of revenue to five six hundred crores of revenue in the Indian context. I do think that it is helpful to have a partner who is on the same side of the table. Whose interests are aligned with you uh, uh, in terms of what will it take to uh, build a large business and you know get to uh, get to a level where you're sustainable and endurable. So I think there is value in and if that's a relationship and for that what is required for that it is an open relationship. It's bad news first. It's a it's a it's a it's a bit of a you have to build trust uh, and and you have to you know share what is happening in the business uh, so that you know you can get. Uh, you know, inputs, if you will, as you make your decision from a couple of people who also really care for the long-term interests of the business. And look, as what is the nature of the input? The nature of the input can be tactical, it can be strategic, it can be in hiring, it can be in figuring out what they want to do. But that all depends on the questions the founders are grappling with and how open they are in sharing those questions with uh, investors. I think uh, VT, we really got some amazing responses and it it really warmed up and went off very well. Thank you so much. It's been our pleasure to have you with us. And, uh, you know, we hope to get you back again soon on another episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Great meeting you, Viti. Thank you. So, Narayan, what did you take away from everything Viti said? Anisha, I think above everything, I liked how he was realistic. He didn't completely dismiss the norm as being untrue or impossible. He acknowledged its possibility and then went on to methodically dismantle it. I especially loved his point about the current setbacks in the funding environment and startup ecosystem in India as being not just necessary, but actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. An ecosystem that does not experience any shocks can either be too good to be true or mm-hmm. unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And so this blip, not quite a burst bubble yet, this blip will help with course corrections, but also serve as a reminder about the amazing potential of the startup economy while tempering it with reality. What about you, Anisha? How would you storm this norm and what hacks do you have for our audience today? You know, while I do have the hacks as always to share, I want to set a baseline first. Mm. And, you know, without spending too much time, I want to emphasize that no other elements can make up for the significant shortfall in quality and its role in value creation. Mm. If you are a burger maker, make sure you get the best burgers. If you mm. manufacture cars, you have to make sure that you the quality is absolutely benchmarked and mm. so on and so forth. Don't lose sight of the core. Mm. Having said that, let's get on to the more unique hacks for today. I'm all yours. The first one is do not become a victim of a zero-sum approach. Interesting. No organization begins by saying that it does not want to create value. But the first gap emerges in understanding who your real stakeholders are. Is it shareholders? Is it employees? Is it business partners, vendors, customers? The underlying assumption in goal setting is that there is a fixed pie of value to be distributed amongst customers, employees, and shareholders or partners. And so the interest of all these groups must be traded off against one another. 
I recognize that zero-sum approach now. And this win-lose or zero-sum thinking usually happens when leadership defines the organization's goals too narrowly. So, for example, to maximize this year's or this quarter's reported earnings. And it will view that interest as being at odds with the interests of customers and employees. And usually what gets traded off is, uh, you know, a customer at the cost of revenue. Mm. Exactly. With that kind of perspective in the short term, Every rupee spent on employee training is a rupee of lost profit. Every additional rupee squeezed out of a customer, even if it comes at the cost of poor service or price gouging, improves this quarter's results. And this trade-off between stakeholders is most visible in leadership's KRAs, where the whopping 70% of more is attributed to revenue and profits, EBITDA and KRAs like those. And the balance is frugally distributed between the so-called softer measures like employees, customers, brand. Mm. As long as management does not change this zero-sum approach, the sustainable value will always be compromised. This is such a fundamental truth, Anisha, and and I think a vastly underestimated hack, if you ask me. I I think startups need to have this framed in their offices, Uh real or virtual. Because it's so critical to them, but it's also as critical to establish as businesses, if you ask me. I love it. Um, I love it. What's your second hack? It's linked to the first one in many ways. Mm. Ascribe a tangible method to evaluate the intangible assets. Our financial accounting systems have been created for the industrial economy, but are inadequate in today's digital economy. Mm. The accounting and finance conventions are good at valuing tangible assets, but they largely ignore the value of difficult to quantify assets like employee satisfaction, learning, R&D effectiveness, customer experience, brand trust, etc., In the digital age, those intangible assets are far more important than the bricks and mortar the traditional accounting systems were designed to measure. But many of these measures are ambiguous and there seems to be a limited understanding of these. Indeed, Narayan. And and that's what makes it so complicated. Customer Mm. value, say, for example, is a dual concept. Mm. First, in order to be successful, firms have to create a perceived value for customers. Second, customers in return give value through multiple forms of engagement like customer lifetime value in the widest sense of the organization. ESG brand matrices are some of the other complex measures and the attribution to companies' growth and valuation is even more so difficult. The time has come to first acknowledge the value of these and find a scientific way to factor them in measuring value creation. That's so well highlighted, Anisha. Maybe we first need to stop treating these as intangible in the first place. I mean, Mm. if your people are not tangible assets in the internet economy, I don't know what to say. So that's that's fantastic. What's your next hack? I think it's important that we don't chase everything. And Mm. my third hack comes from there. Mm. You have to find your own headroom for growth. In today's times, companies instinctively unleash a flurry of new activity, often overlooking the growth opportunities that are right in front of them. In their hurry to make up for lost time and see quick results, they get easily tempted by tactical opportunities or get lured by the idea of diversification without a clear sense of where the true opportunity for growth exists. Mm. That can prove costly, perhaps with disastrous consequences. At a time when resources are scarce and getting the highest yield on these resources is becoming paramount. 
So how does one avoid falling into that trap? So it's important to play to your strengths and unlock in market potential from existing by understanding where your real headroom lies. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's what the hack is all about. Mm-hmm. If you were to create a matrix, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. Uh, which is along two lines, which is value and headroom. Okay, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you you it would fall into four quadrants. Right. There's low value, low headroom. Mm-hmm. These people are polygamous loyals. They belong to many. Mm. On the same axis, you have high value, low headroom. Mm. These people are hardcore loyals. They belong to you. They are not going to go away anywhere. Mm. Okay. Then there is low value, high headroom. Mm. These are people who are competition loyalists. Mm. You have no right to them. Mm. Ignore them. Mm. Then there is high value, high headroom. These are split loyals and they belong to few. Okay. Mm-hmm. They, they never belong to anybody. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is you have to nurture your loyalists, ignore the competition loyals, try and lure the split loyals with tangible propositions mm-hmm. and park the polygamous loyals in the queue for better times. So simple. And, and this is such a di- contentious dichotomy, right, Anisha, between acquisition and value sustenance through loyalty and lifetime value of a customer. What I really like about this hack is the clarity around competition loyals and polygamous loyals. And I think that's a loyal reality that very few acknowledge. I- I'm really loving your hacks today. <laughs> Thank <Keep them> you. Coming. <laughs> so here's the fourth one. Um, and, and, and it's becoming very prevalent today. Design mm. thinking and a design-centric culture is becoming the new tool for humanizing and creating differentiated value. Mm. There's a shift underway in many organizations, one that puts design much closer to the center of the enterprise. But the shift isn't about aesthetics. It's Mm. about applying the principles of design to the way people think and work. I know what you mean. Design thinking first used to make physical objects is increasingly being applied to complex intangible issues such as how a customer experiences a service. And you see how this is again linked to the first two hacks that we had. Yeah. Design-centric culture helps you exhibit thoughtful restraint. Okay. Mm. Many products are built on emotional value proposition, are simpler than competitors' offerings. This restraint grows out of deliberate decisions about what the product should do and just as important what it should not do. Mm. By removing features, a company offers customers a clear, simple experience. And design-centric culture helps you do that. Mm. It, rather than chase the market with many features and incremental features and follow-on features, mm. it's important to lead the market with the designed-for-customer focus, few simple features. How can anyone argue with the criticality of this? I mean, especially in the startup economy, where one can get carried away by innovation and disruption. This is such a handy hack. Uh, so what's your last hack for today, Anisha? Uh, this one's uh, a little more fundamental. It's mm. about sustainable innovation across the value chain of the organization. Mm. And in many ways, they all our hacks today are intertwined with each other. Mm. Most companies end up having a very narrow definition of a company's customers. And that's the last mile consumer of your product. Mm. Organizations need to see their customers as all stakeholders right along the value chain, Mm. not just the end user 
but all those that help their offerings products get to market mm. everybody in the value chain is your customer Mm. and the best example to bring this alive is india's very own aravind i care mm. launched almost 4 decades ago in the form of an 11 bed clinic in madurai aravind i care system today is an example and a global benchmark and there are multiple case studies written and studied around it it's all over the internet uh, but it's 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 pertinent to bring this in context to this hack to bring this hack alive like any system healthcare is a complex interaction of parts contributing to the whole physicians administrative staff insurance companies payers patients caregivers each contributing to the adoption of new technologies such a complex interplay of players means an in-depth understanding of who is in your system their role in the care pathway and this is where the real genius genius of dr g venkat swami popularly he's popularly known as dr v comes in so fascinating and you know where it all started mm. one of the images that impressed dr v most on his visits to america was the golden arches of mcdonalds mm. and he said why couldn't the assembly line efficiency that made hamburgers available on the street corners of every town in the world at a price everyone could afford be harnessed to the mission of fight, fighting blindness mm. fascinating visha and and so many fantastic business insights in one place as usual from you thank you narayan this is also a great place to bring in our gt bharat expert today to provide a real world way in which the startup ecosystem can go beyond being mere money movers and create real world value for multiple stakeholders uh, today we have raja lahiri Who's partner growth and transaction advisory, um, as well as working with the PE side of things? Uh, he actually actively works with PE firms, VC funds, and startups, and in his great place to provide the insight from GT Bharat today. So, welcome, Raja. Good to have you back on this new episode and on our favorite topic, which is the whole startup ecosystem. And uh, the question straight away to you is. 2021 was a record year for the startup ecosystem when it comes to funding with massive liquidity vcs pe's angels were all wooing entrepreneurs and the sentiment was something like this we'll give you more money than you need but you go but you better go as fast as you can if you need more no problem but just get to the unicorn status faster than your nearest competitor and in this entire rat race this whole conversation about value sustainable value creation just gets compromised i just want to hear your insights on this oh thanks anish i think very very well articulated you you talked about value creation and that gets compromised but let me just take a little back step and 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 and, and just try to create what happened last year uh so first of all what's the kind of capital that got invested 11 billion dollars in 2021 got invested in india in startup so that's that's the highest ever took india to the third startup destination in the world by the way 2022 also saw 4.6 billion dollars so the trend continues number one now question on the unicorn status yes there's been 100 plus unicorns in india today and the question is being raised in terms of how many can 
sustain, survive uh, on a sustainable basis. Now, my personal view is capital is lifeline for the business. So first of all, easy money, I'm not sure always because it's a private equity money. They have other investors investing into them, which comes in. So they take bets and clearly in a market which is disruptive and which creates an opportunity, you need capital to build businesses, to disrupt and acquire customers, number one. The number two is you talked about the unicorn status. Now, unicorn status, I agree with you that there's been a frenzy. And fundamentally, if you look at it, I always believe the market is the king. The market is intelligent and observes and corrects things as it goes on. And we've already seen that in 2022. Valuations have come down. Capital infusion, investor sentiment is also of, of, of I would say, cautious optimism as far as India is concerned. And which is a good thing in, in, in fundamental way because, because we are moving to the core of value creation as you talked about. Now, in my view, value creation is about not just becoming a unicorn. Value creation is creating value for customers, employees, investors, and the larger society. And, and, and in that case, you know, you talked about the rat race. Uh, in, in, in all of this, speed is all, of course, of the essence. But let's not forget the age-old norm of slow and steady wins the race, which means that on a sustainable basis, companies need to focus on the foundations, which, 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 which we have talked about before, which is the principles of profitable model, high quality delivery, good cash flow management, and the high standards of corporate governance. And fundamentally, as someone said, it's not values over valuation, but it is mm -hmm. the values which lead to value creation and ultimately value creation. Well said, uh, Raja. Absolutely. You know, and some of the points that you made about the market always being two steps ahead of, you know, anybody else, you know, we think we are smarter, but the larger market forces always have a way of showing you the mirror and correcting. So, so absolutely well summarized, you know, thank you so much for that. Really appreciate your being here. Thank you, Anisha. A thought-provoking norm, a seasoned expert, and some great levers to storm the norm. This is a good place to wrap up episode 29 of Storm the Norm. As always, there are multiple places you can catch us on. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and GeoSavan by just searching for Storm the Norm. And on Saregama Karavan 2.0 devices on channel 453. This is Narayan. And Anisha. Signing off for now. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Thank you and talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.